Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving weekend last weekend. I know a lot of people were traveling and out of town, but it's good to be back with you today. And if this is your first time being here with us this morning, I uh, just wanted to welcome you. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and would love to be able to meet you after the service. And at the end, we'll tell you a couple of ways that you can get connected and involved here in the life of Sojourn. But man, what a great day it is to gather together as God's people. I was driving over here this morning. It was a weird bit of a morning. It was kind of wet outside, but the sun was bright. And I uh, was just rejoicing the fact that God's mercies are new every morning. Amen? And so we get to enjoy that today as we open up His Word and hear from Him today. If you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, somebody will bring a Bible around to you. So just keep your hand up till they find you. I want you to have God's Word in front of you as we dive in. And if you don't actually own a copy of the Scriptures, just feel free to take that home with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word, not just this morning, but all throughout the week as well. Before we open up God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for this time. We're grateful for this moment that in your sovereignty, in your providence, you saw fit for each person that's sitting here today to be here at this moment, at this time. And God, this is a holy moment. Not because we in and of ourselves are holy, not just because we're here, but because you are God and you dwell among us. And so, Lord, we acknowledge your presence this morning. We acknowledge the fact that you are our living God, our almighty God, who is worthy of all of our worship, who's worthy of the entirety of our lives. Lord, we praise you that we get to commune with you, that you've made a way for us to be in relationship with you, and that we can gather this morning to receive your word. So, Lord, I pray that that would never be lost on us that we would never take for granted that you allow us through Christ to come and be in your presence each moment of each day. We praise you for the gift that your word is. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your spirit that enables us to understand your word and live out what you've called us to. And so I pray, Father, this morning that you would stir our hearts. You would stir our affections for you. God, I pray that you would change our lives. And so we give this time to you, we submit it to you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I've mentioned this before, but when I was in high school, I was involved in a lot of plays. One time in particular, my most horrifying moment on stage came in a scene with just me and one other person. And we were performing in the middle of the day in front of most of just classmates in high school and teachers. And so the auditorium was packed with a bunch of students and teachers. And in this packed auditorium, we went through this scene. And it was a, a dramatic scene with a tricky exchange of lines. And in this scene, a key cue had to come from off stage that someone was going to deliver a line from off stage that was going to help the scene to continue to move forward. And if you've ever been in a play before, you know that if someone misses a line or messes up a line, then things can get dicey quickly. Well, my friend, who was supposed to deliver this offstage line, didn't. It just never came. And I don't know if she forgot, I don't know if she got distracted or what, but the line never came. And in that moment, it threw me for a loop. I didn't know what to do. I forgot what I was supposed to say next. I messed up the whole rest of the scene, and it was 
so embarrassing. I would still say it's probably the most embarrassing moment of my life to stand in front of six or seven hundred of your classmates and just look like a fool. And the thing about it was in that moment, it was only me and my counterpart on stage and the person who forgot to deliver the line that actually knew what had really happened. It just looked like I was the one that was messing that up, that I wasn't able to engage with that. I needed her to show up in that moment, but she didn't. And so I looked foolish. Well, the theme for our time in God's word this morning is this. I need you to show up. I need you to show up. That's the title of the sermon and the focus of what we're going to look at today. Over the last few weeks, we've been walking through Hebrews 11, a chapter in the grand book of Hebrews. Hebrews, a letter that's written to a struggling church, mostly made up of new followers of Jesus. A church that's struggling because they're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing challenges and temptations in the midst of a world and a culture that was set against Jesus and the gospel. And you and I find ourselves with similar challenges. They're not exactly the same challenges, but similar challenges to wrestle with. Similar similar challenges to walk through. And this question that's been posed to us when things are hard in our lives, when we're experiencing challenge in our lives, when We're having a hard time knowing what God is doing in the midst of our life. Will we keep trusting? Will we keep following Jesus? Will we continue to believe that he is better than anything this world offers to us? As we've been in chapter 11, we've seen that there's a a call to true faith, a call to genuine faith. And the author's given us a a bit of a definition of faith in verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not a blind leap. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's certainty. It's taking God at his word, believing God. You know, as I was reflecting on Hebrews 11 and our time in it over these last few weeks, I was just thinking, man, what a gift. That God has given us this word. What a gift that we get to walk through this together. It's almost like we've been in this little mini-series, mini-sermon series on faith. And that's coming off of doing a little bit of a mini-series on community in Hebrews chapter 10. Two things that I really long for our church to continue to grow in. That we would be a community that encourages one another, and builds one another up in Christ, that enjoys gathering with one another, and a community marked by faith true faith, the faith that we see in Hebrews 11. It's been a gift because the reality is so many of us struggle with having this kind of faith. Whether we've been following Jesus for a long time or we're just starting to follow Jesus, we can struggle with having this kind of faith, not in just in this moment where we're sitting here on a Sunday morning, but as we walk out into our week, as we engage with our coworkers, as we just live as human beings in a broken world. And as, we've come to our, as we come to our text today, we get an even more insane picture of faith, a, a call to seemingly absurd faith, a faith that says, I need you to show up. I need you to show up. Because I've reflected on this text, it's been challenging to me both as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor in Jesus' church. And so my hope for all of us today, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, and if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, know that I am so thankful. We are so thankful and glad that you're here this morning. We want this to be a place, a community, a people that you can come as you are, that you can ask questions, 
that you can learn what authentic faith really looks like and is and who Jesus is and what life with him looks like. And that you learn it not from a perfect people, but from a messy people who are desperately in need of grace. My hope, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, is that God would blow your mind today. That he would do a surgical work in your heart this morning. Not because of the eloquence of my speech, but because of the reality and the truth of his word and who he is. My hope is that even in this moment, this would be a defining moment in your life. That it would be even a defining moment for our church as we together strive to move forward in faith and faithfulness in life. So with that, let's open up to Hebrews chapter 11 and dive into the word this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 29 through 31. Just these three short verses. This is what the author of Hebrews writes and what God says to us this morning. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. What takes place in these three short verses are three vignettes, three events in the life of God's people. And they're each headed with that consistent refrain we've seen throughout the book of, or through the chapter uh, 11 in the book of Hebrews. By faith. By faith. And then he gives us all these examples and tells all these stories. And within these three stories, we see this theme emerge that we can all learn and be challenged from. I need you to show up. In verse 29, we see a bit of a continuation from what we looked at last week in the life of Moses. Last week, we saw Moses lead the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt, and the Passover took place, where God commanded the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb and take some of the blood of that lamb and put it over their doorpost so that the angel of death would not take their firstborn son, but would pass over their home, bringing salvation and rescue. And in that moment, finally, after some 400 years in slavery in Egypt, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, let God's people go. He released them. But what happened is, is that after he let them go, not long after they had departed and walked out into the wilderness, he changed his mind. He regretted that he let them go, and he gave orders to go and bring them back. And so the people of God numbering in the millions probably at that point, are traveling out of Egypt towards the Red Sea. God's led them to go towards the Red Sea, and he calls them to encamp at the edge of the Red Sea. And we see this in Exodus chapter 14. You can flip over there if you'd like. Exodus chapter 14. He's called them to go there, and they're standing there, and they're camping out, all these people there. And we see this in Exodus 14, verse 10. It says this, When Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom, Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You can imagine this. They're, they're going here, and they're, they're camped out, and all of a sudden, over the edge of the horizon, they see this cloud of dust as Pharaoh's army starts to get closer and closer. Even from a distance, they could still see this, and they all of a sudden are terrified. What in the world is happening? There's a sea before us and an army behind us. We're gone. We're dead in that moment. It's a terrifying reality for the people of God, seeing this army bearing down on them. Moses calls them to believe, and Moses, following God's command, stands at the edge of the sea, and God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea. A strong wind blows from the east, and it moves the, 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 the water to the side, creating a dry place for the people to walk across. And so the water parts, and the people move across this Red Sea. And they get to the other side of the Red Sea, and at that point in time, the, the barrier that's kept Pharaoh's army from coming after the people of Israel, this fire that's been between them is gone, it's released, and so the army comes charging into that same breach within the water, coming after the people of Israel, but Moses brings his hands back together, and the water comes back, and it drowns the whole Egyptian army. God saved his people in that moment. But when we look at that story initially, it doesn't look like the people have much faith at all, does it? I mean, they complain, they grumble, they're fearful. But what we see in that is God works through the faith of one person. He works through the faith of Moses to bolster the faith of the people. Through the power of God and the obedience of Moses, the sea was parted. And through Moses, as he told them to believe and to trust, to walk out across the sea, they did. It's an act of faith. It was indeed by faith that they crossed over. Seemingly absurd faith. A God, I need you to show up kind of faith that, that allowed the people to step out and walk across. I mean, can you imagine that moment? Like as they're getting ready to go, it's like, I, I hope this works out. God, I need you to show up right here because if that water doesn't hold back, then I'm gone. God, I need you to be here. And they stepped out believing God, taking God at his word to do the seemingly impossible, and God made a way. By faith, the people experienced rescue again. And it was by a lack of faith that the army of Pharaoh drowned. See, faith in God, not just believing in him, but believing him, is a matter of life and death. And God put them in this impossible position so that they and the Egyptians might know that he is God. And the people of God learned this by grace in the army of Egypt through judgment. The same type of overcoming faith is seen in our next little story, our next little vignette in verse 30. Let me read it to us again. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. The author of Hebrews recounts the first major, major obstacle that the people of God encounter as they cross into the promised land, if after they've crossed over the Jordan. And they, what it is is this heavily fortified, this ominous city of Jericho. Now, something interesting to note here in this text is between verse 29 and verse 30 is 40 years. I think it's interesting that he, we see the people of God cross over the Red Sea, going towards the promised land, and the next thing he mentions is that now they've crossed the Jordan and they're at the city of Jericho. But 40 years have taken place, passed by. Now, why does he skip all that? 
I don't know for sure, but one guess is there's not a lot of examples of faith in those moments. That 40 years of wandering wasn't marked by obedience, but disobedience. Not by faith, but faithlessness. Because they didn't trust God. But here in this moment, we see that God is always faithful to his plans. He is always faithful to his promises. He's always faithful to his people. He said he would bring them into this land, and so he raises up a new generation led by Joshua to cross over the river and enter the promised land. But entrance into the plan of God, entrance into the will of God, does not mean that life will always be easy. And we see that in this moment, but that's good for us to recognize for our own life. And see, sometimes I think we can think, if I'm walking in the will of God, if I'm walking in the plan of God, then everything should go easily for me. But that's not what we see God do in the midst of much of our life. He's teaching and growing us in those moments to continue to be desperate for him, to continue to be dependent on him. And we see that with them. They would encounter time and again obstacles and enemies of God. And if they were going to move beyond the banks of the Jordan River into the heart of the land, they had to go through Jericho first. This story takes place in Joshua chapter 6. And God asked Joshua to lead the people to do something seemingly ridiculous. He doesn't tell them to train for a long time for battle. He doesn't call them to heavily arm themselves. He doesn't say launch missiles, send in Trojan horses. He tells them to walk around the city for six days in silence. Get up, walk around the walls, go back to your camp. Repeat the next day for six days. Then on the seventh day, We're not just going to do it one time, we're going to do it seven times. Go to the city, walk around the wall seven times, and then on the seventh time, I want the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, that are serving the people of God, to blow their horns and all the people to shout, and then the walls will come falling down. Really? That's the game plan, God. You you, you want us to march and yell, and then the walls are going to come down in this most heavily fortified city, probably one of the most densely populated, heavily armed group of people that we're going to encounter, you want us to yell at them. What in the world are you talking about? But see, again, God works through the faith of Joshua, one man, to bolster the faith of the people. Joshua believed God. Joshua trusted God. Joshua took God at his word and led the people towards that to walk in obedience and do what God had commanded them to do. So once again, it was by faith. A seemingly absurd faith, a God, I need you to show up kind of faith. But the people marched in silence for six days and marched in silence on the seventh day six times and at the seventh time shouted, believing God, taking him at his word to do the seemingly impossible, and he did. The walls fell and victory was theirs. And then we come to our last story in this short trilogy in verse 31, the story of Rahab. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. With the other two stories, we've seen they're about a group of people. This one is about an individual. This story takes place in conjunction with what happened in verse 30. Before the people of God encircled the walls of Jericho, before they'd even crossed over the Jordan River, Joshua sent two spies to go check out the situation with Jericho. And so these two spies go and they end up staying at Rahab's house. 
And the scriptures very clearly here and throughout other places say that Rahab is a prostitute. And it was common in that time for a woman like Rahab to essentially run a place that functioned much like a hostel. A place for travelers to come and stay. A place that maybe the spies could blend in and go unnoticed. But somehow they were found out as they entered the city. And the king of the city came looking for them. But Rahab didn't give them up. He, she hid them. Which in and of itself is crazy. It's most likely that her life would have been on the line for doing that. She probably gave up a large sum of money of reward for being, not being willing to give those spies up. But she didn't. Why? Why doesn't she do this? Why does she choose instead to hide them? Well, she tells us in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8-11. through 11, It says, She came up to them on the roof to the spies and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Do you catch what she's saying there? Remember our timeline? We heard about this. That thing that happened 40 years ago and our hearts have melted. We're terrified. But how does she respond? She responds in faith. She believes this is the Lord, that this is God. She had faith in him and entrusted herself to him. And so she asked that the people of God would spare her and her family when they took the city. And the spies agreed And this was the game plan. Okay, listen, we're going to come in the city. The walls are going to crumble and fall down. Your home might be damaged and destroyed, but we want you to hang a crimson cord out your window. And then we'll know that that's where your family is and anyone inside that place will be saved. So here again is another incredible act of faith. A seemingly absurd faith. God, I need you to show up kind of faith. And in that moment, she let these two spies go and believed that when Israel came back into the city that she would be saved and not killed. Believing God, taking him at his word to do the seemingly impossible to save her and her family. And when the walls fell and Israel entered the city, that's exactly what happened. Rahab and her family were saved. And that was only the beginning of her redemption. If we flip over to the book of Matthew, the beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we learn through a genealogy that this same Rahab would leave prostitution and she would marry a man. And she would have a son and his name would be Boaz. And Boaz would marry a woman named Ruth. There's a whole book of the Bible that tells that story. And Ruth would have a son named Obed, who would have a son named Jesse, who would have a son named David. David. Like the David, like King David, the King of Israel, through whom the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world would come. King Jesus, that we read about from Micah chapter 5 this morning and Isaiah chapter 11 in our Advent reading last week. Through this act of faith, by this woman of faith, the Savior of the world would come. And catch this, he would come to save her and save people just like her. I love the the dichotomy of what's going on here in verse 31, this juxtaposition between Rahab and the people of the city that perished. Do you see what it says? Why did they perish and she didn't? It says because she 
walked in obedience. She did what God had asked her to do in this moment of hiding the spies. And because the people were disobedient, they were disobedient. But she's a prostitute. That, that, that's evidence of some disobedience, right? That's not God's design for anyone. But see, what we see in that moment, it's not about performance. It's not about perfection. Someone is saved from sin. It's not about cleaning yourself up first. It's about faith in the God who saves. Faith in the God who saves through his son, who, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This God that she believed our God, he saves to the uttermost. See, Rahab is an example to us that no one is too far gone for redemption. She was everything you would not expect from a person who displays saving faith. She didn't grow up in a Christian home. She didn't go to Sunday school. She didn't learn about Jesus or learn about God. When she grew up, she wasn't seeking after him. She wasn't living a quote-unquote good life. But God made a way, and he came for her, and he rescued her. And just be a reminder for us, a reminder for us to not give up on the broken, to not give up on people in, a li- in our lives, a person right now in your life that as you look at them, as you consider them, they seem to you to be someone who could never come to saving faith. And God saves to the uttermost. And maybe that's you today. Listen, just like Rahab, you don't come when you've cleaned yourself up. You don't come once you've made yourself right. You don't come to God when you've done more good than bad. You come as you are to the Savior who came for you. See, in these three short verses, we see that people pass through a grave of water and come out alive on the other side. We see an insurmountable walls and barriers broken down and victory won. We see a turning away from a life of sin and slavery to freedom and salvation. All of these stories show us a picture of salvation and promise and that God is able, that God is faithful. And all of these instances of salvation and promise are ultimately found and fulfilled in Christ. He went through death for us and came out alive on the other side so that we could have life. He broke down the walls and barriers that separated us from God. He broke down the barrier that hung in the temple, this veil that showed us our separation between us and God, and it tore in two when Jesus was crucified. He broke the shackles of bondage to our sin and slavery and purchased freedom and salvation for all who believe. It's grace upon grace, and it comes through faith. And so if you don't truly know him this morning, Let me invite you, let me implore you to come to him right now in this moment. And if you already do know him, let me implore you, let me encourage you to continue to trust him. Not just for your salvation at a future moment in time, but trust him with your life right now, no matter what lies ahead of you. Because see, we have to keep looking back to the cross and the empty tomb to be able to move forward in this kind of faith. In these stories, along with much of the rest of Hebrews 11, we see that faith, genuine faith, leads to movement and action. It overflows in obedience. And God has asked them to, to, something that appeared, to do something that appeared ridiculous, that looked impossible. It required them to move forward in such a way that if God didn't show up, 
they would fail. They would look like fools for these people that they would die. But it was their faith in God, believing God that led them to do what he had called them to do. And as I studied and thought about this this week and just thought about my own life, I was, I was struck and challenged just to think about my faith, to think about how it plays out in my life and in my ministry. And what I realize is this, is I often don't operate with this kind of faith. I often don't have this seemingly absurd, God, I need you to show up kind of faith. A friend of mine recently said to me, he said, the secret temptation of pastors is that they would get to a place where they could do ministry that doesn't require faith. Where everything is just kind of easy, right? It's, it's going well. People are happy, generally speaking. Man, it doesn't require faith. It doesn't require that dependence on God. And man, I've been there. And I was taking a walk this week, just thinking and praying through this and just needed to repent of that before the Lord. But you know what? I'm going to have to keep doing that. Continue to repent of that again and again because, see, it always seems easier to me. It always seems easier to me to do life and do ministry on my own. My own strength, my own ability, my own knowledge. It seems easier to me to do that than having to be utterly dependent on God. But that's exactly what I am. I am utterly dependent on God. I mean, what a farce for me to think that I can actually be faithful without this absurd, God, I need you to show up kind of faith. It's ludicrous to think that. But so often I do. But I'm not self-existent. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not self-actualized. I'm not wise on my own. I'm not able on my own. I'm not strong enough on my own. I'm a mess. I'm insufficient. I'm weak. Apart from God, I am nothing and I can do nothing. I need God. In every moment of every day of my life, I need him. Just like the people in these three stories, I need him to show up. And the reality is, so do you. You too are utterly dependent on God to be and do all that he has and is and will call you to. But often, because of fear, maybe because of laziness, we are too easily occupied, too easily satisfied, too easily distracted, and we're bound to less glorious things, seemingly safer things things that don't require faith at all. Even good things. But they're these good things instead of the great things that God has for us to walk in. But listen, I believe that God is calling you. I believe he is calling me. I believe he is calling our church to have this I need you to show up kind of faith. So what is it for, for you right now? What is it for you right now? What is it for our church that if God doesn't show up, if God doesn't come through, you will look like a fool. And you may be thinking, well, I, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? Well, friend, the good news is God has given us his word and he has told us who we are and he has told us the kind of life that we're called to live. 
Are you and I called to be a, a missionary locally and globally? Yes, he tells us to go to all nations and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded and Christ will go with us in that. Are we called to radical generosity? Yes, his word tells us that, that we're called not to give out of our abundance, but out of our poverty, to open our hands and our lives and to give joyfully and sacrificially to what God is calling us to. Are we called to pursue holiness in all of life? Yes, his word tells us that we are to be holy as he is holy. Are we called to strive for unity in the body of Christ at all costs? Yes, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that Christ purchased unity for us and now he calls us to maintain that unity amongst one another. Are we called to lay down our rights to love others in our community? He calls us to bear with one another. He calls us to forgive those who have sinned against us. He calls us to carry one another and pick one another up. He calls us to consider each other's needs as more important than our own. Has he called us to be merciful to the marginalized? Yes, we're called to show mercy because we've been given mercy. Husbands, has he called you to love your wife and lead your wife in your home out of love? Yes, he says to lay down your life for them like Christ did for the church. Has he called us to walk in humble repentance when we mess up? Yes, he's called us to confess our sin to one another and to come before the Father asking him to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the question for you isn't what am I supposed to do? It's how is God calling me to specifically live this out in my life right now with an I need you to show up kind of faith? Maybe for some of you this morning, what you're wrestling with in that moment is God is calling you to pack up everything and move overseas. To go to a hard place, to go to an unreached people, to bring the good news of the gospel to them. Maybe for some of you, what God's calling you to do when it comes to radical generosity, it's not just to get to the, the bare minimum of what you feel like passes with that, but to say, God, I want to open my whole life. Would you help me to give more than 10%, 15%, a large majority of what you've given me to use my resources to be a generous person, to give to the ministry and mission of the church. Maybe God's calling you to change your job, to, to sacrifice a certain amount of income or status so that you can be in your neighborhood more or spend more time with your family or your roommates. You can serve somewhere in the community. Maybe God's calling you to share Christ with your neighbor. I'm just going to go out on a limb. God is calling you to share Christ with your neighbor. <laughs> but for you to actually walk across the street and develop a relationship with them and open your mouth and share your life and tell them about Jesus. Maybe God's calling you to stick it out in a difficult situation right now. Instead of cutting and running. Running away to the promise of ease and greener pastures. Maybe God's calling you to adopt. Maybe he's calling you to pursue foster care. Maybe God's calling you just to walk in humble repentance and community. That there's something in your life right now that you have been unwilling to come before your brothers and sisters and say, I'm sorry, I need help. I want to walk in faithfulness with you before my God. All of those things require, I need you to show up kind of faith. All of them. And what is it for our church where we need to be living and walking in that way? The elders, pastors of the church have been praying through and talking about and working through this even as we speak. And, and my hope in seeking to lead well in this is that we would think and pray more with, through this kind of lens through I need you to show up kind of faith lens, not a, a risk management style of ministry, 
where we guard and protect and hedge our bets, where we would step out like we're stepping into the dry land with water on both our sides saying, God, I need you to show up right now if you want us to do these things. So I'll share some of my hopes with you this morning, and we'll be sharing more of this at the start of the year. Then I want us to be a more multi-generational church, a more multi-ethnic church, a church where we celebrate men and women and how they're gifted, a place where we see all generations participating in the life of the church, all cultures participating in the life of our church, that we would be a radically generous church giving away a significant amount of our resources as a church that's made up of a radically generous people that we would have a culture of rampant evangelism where everyone is excited and amped up to go share their faith with people, that we would aggressively be sending people, that it'd be a regular occurrence that there are men and women standing on this stage that we are praying over, seeing off at the airport to get on the plane, to go overseas, to tell others about Jesus, and to send out church plants in this area, and to send you out every week to share Christ with your neighbors, that we'd have a culture of prolific servanthood, where everyone is engaged in serving one another and serving the church and serving outside the walls of this church, where we would be a merciful community to our community, that we'd be a church with a culture of holistic discipleship, where we're caring for one another holistically, where every single person who walks through the doors of this church that's a part of this community knows how to study their Bible, knows how to disciple those around them towards Christ-likeness. That we'd have a flourishing family ministry for kids and students and marriages that every person who calls sojourn in their church would have the opportunity to be connected in transformational community. That God would provide a permanent place for us to gather and send out, be sent out from each week so that we can host hypothermia week in the place that God's provided for so that we can serve those in our community who don't have a place to go so that we can be equipped to do everything God's called us to do. That this church gathering would be filled with children who once were orphaned but have now been brought into families, adopted, fostered, that we would see all of those things take place. And all of those things require, I need you to show up kind of faith. That if God doesn't show up in those moments as we step out in those things, that we will look foolish. But here's something I don't want you to miss in all this. It isn't just the big things. It's also the mundane things of life as well. It's all of life. Because my guess is for some of you this morning, what you're thinking about is, man, all that sounds great, but I'm having trouble just getting out of the bed in the morning. I'm having a hard time with my kids right now. I'm having a hard time at work. And it's in those moments of, of being a parent, of disciplining and discipling your kids, of going to your workplace, going to the same cubicle every day, doing the same task every day. You're having a hard time knowing what the why is for that. In your marriage right now, to love and serve your spouse, to seek to place their needs above your own and your leisure, whatever it happens to be. It's in those moments as well. Because what if we started the day with this kind of faith? That when you woke up in the morning to engage the day, that the posture of your heart is, God, I need you to show up today. I need you to show up today. I can't do this on my own. God, I need you to lead. I need you to guide, to provide. I need you to go before I need you to empower. I need you to work. I need you to overcome. I need you to be you and me to be me. And all of those things from big to small require, they necessitate, I need you to show up kind of faith.
because none of those things in your life or our church, whether big or small, whether grand or mundane, are achieved or realized by sheer human ingenuity or creativity or ability. God has to work in us and through us. And so I'm praying and I'm pleading for God to do that because, man, I want this kind of faith. I want this kind of faith in my own life. I want it in the life of our church and I want it for you. And so what we have to realize in all this is we don't just walk out of here saying, all right, great, I'm going to do that today. No, see, none of this will happen if we don't pray to the God who parts the seas. If we don't pray to the God who tears down walls. If we don't pray to the God who saves to the uttermost. So will you join me in praying for and with this kind of faith? Maybe you're thinking this morning, well, man, I'm, I'm, I'm weak in my faith right now. I'm weak in my faith. Maybe you're struggling to believe God. Maybe you're struggling to take him at his word, to open up your hands and your life to what he's calling you to. Well, let me encourage you in two ways. First, look to those around you. We do this together. Look to those around you to be encouraged by the faith that you see around you, even if you're struggling. And maybe right now what you're also realizing is maybe you feel like, well, I, I feel like I'm, God's growing this kind of faith in my heart, but I'm not sure about the people around me. Well, as one pastor says, if we live a life of dynamic certainty regarding God's word, we will elevate and energize others to live as they ought. One person's faith can raise the level of a whole church. And we see that with Moses. We see that with Joshua. Maybe that's you this morning. If you're struggling, look to those around you to see their faith. That might encourage you in your faith. See, one of the things I love about this text is that we see a picture of corporate faith, but corporate faith is always the sum total of individual faith. And so, Sojourn, we need each other. This is a collective endeavor because faith often requires the conviction for God to do the seemingly impossible. When we're struggling to believe, the second thing that we can do is just to move forward with this kind of faith is to find certainty in God's faithfulness by looking back to the cross and the empty tomb. Because see, in the midst of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, things didn't seem to be going the way that God had said they would. Instead, in that moment, it seemed like God, instead of showing up, seemed like he was absent and incapable. But that's not true at all. He was actively working in the midst of all of it to bring about redemption and new life to a broken down world. Next week, we're going to finish out Hebrews chapter 11, and part of what we're going to see in that is what it looks like when we have faith and things don't go well for us. And so we'll talk more about that next week. But listen this morning, you may not always know what God is doing. You may not always can see the long view in your life of what he's up to in those moments, but what you can know for sure is that God is and that he's faithful. Because see, the focus of your faith is never on the action or the act of obedience. It's on the God who has called and the God who has come and the God who has committed to never leave you or forsake you, but to be with you to the very end of the age. So again, What is God calling you to right now that requires I need you to show up kind of faith? As God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.
Indeed he is. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. So sojourn, walk forward confidently and courageously with him because he goes with you. As we come forward today to take communion, it in and of itself is an act of faith. We come forward to the table to eat the bread and drink the cup, a picture of Christ's body broken for us and Christ's blood shed for us. By coming forward, we celebrate, I mean, we declare with our bodies as we get up and move. We declare with our hands as we reach out and take, with our ears as we hear what Christ has done for us, spoken over us, and with our hearts as we take it all in. We declare in all of those things that we believe God, that our faith is in Christ our Savior, who lived and died and rose again for us. So we come forward to eat of this meal to bolster our faith. We come forward to eat of this meal to bolster the faith of those around us. It's a means of grace to walk out into this week, our eyes and our hearts set on Christ, filled with Christ to live an I need you to show up kind of faith. So come forward this morning. Come forward in a spirit of repentance or you haven't had that kind of faith. And come forward with a spirit of hopefulness for a renewed faith. And then let's sing joyfully and expectantly together. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning because of what I just said. This is a declaration of our faith. And so if you don't yet have that faith, or maybe God's stirring in your heart even in this moment, we would just ask you to hang in your seat and pray to God, talk to him about that. If you're ready to take that step of faith, to believe on Christ, to take Jesus, then tell God that. And then let somebody around you know so we can journey with you and help you to understand what it looks like to live life with Christ. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or at the back. Come whenever you're ready. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning and we just declare, Lord, we need you. Oh God, we need you. We are desperate for you. Utterly dependent on you. We have nothing apart from you. We can do nothing without you. And so Lord, I pray that you would cultivate within us this kind of faith, this seemingly absurd faith, this I need you to show up God kind of faith. Both in the mundane realities of our life, being a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife, a roommate, a coworker, a friend, or those other things in our life right now that you are impressing on our hearts and minds, those bigger, more challenging things that we have before us. God, would you show us what they are and would you give us the faith to move forward in them? Would you help our church to have this kind of faith as we dream about the future, as we think about what you're calling us to, that we wouldn't be fearful, God, but we would step out in faith and ask you, pray for you, plead with you to show up and go before us. And Lord, in all of that, the best part about it is you get all the glory. Father, we're thankful for your grace that even as we falter and fail in our faith along the way that you are always faithful. So help us to rest in that today and encourage one another throughout this week and keep our eyes on you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.